Uh, welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for July 4th, 2008. I'd like to welcome back my regular panel, uh, David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hello. And we've got Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. Hey, Chuck. How's it going, Hunter? How are you? I'm good. Dave Schwartz from uh, UNLV Center for Gaming Research. I just heard a, uh interview, our podcast, I think, Dave, that you did where someone was asking you uh, if the name had changed recently or <laughs> is that what you're calling it now? I think was the actual quote. Really? It was pretty funny. It may have been old, but yeah, uh, it, was, so. it was a podcast that, uh, that, that I heard on another show. And uh, and this interviewer was kind of cluelessly throwing questions at you, <laughs> but you handled uh, with uh, you handled them very well. It was pretty funny. Thanks. Anyway, Dave, welcome. Um, Jeff Simpson from Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Welcome, Jeff. Greetings, guys. And my name is Hunter Hillegas, and I run RateVegas.com. And we've got a slate of new topics for today, but first off, I want to remind everyone that coming up on August 16th at the Palms, we will be participating in Vegas Podcast Palooza. Uh, this show, along with Five Hundy by Midnight and the Strip Podcast, will be done in front of a live audience. And our guest on the Vegas Gang will be Palms owner George Malouf. Should be a lot of fun. The event is totally free, and you can find out all the details at VegasPodcastPalooza.com which I will link to in case you're not so good at spelling Podcastapalooza. Um, so that should be great, and I hope everybody can come out. Now, we do have a set of prepared items for today, but first off, um, just this afternoon, uh, Wynn Resorts announced their second quarter earnings. Um, they had pre-announced some numbers a couple of weeks ago, uh, which you know I think was tied to a stock buyback that they wanted to make sure that they were uh, doing their proper disclosures. Anyway, um, you know, I think Las, their Las Vegas numbers were a little soft, but uh, Macau more than made up for it, and uh, they had, uh, you know, a great quarter in terms of earnings. Um, we were joking before the call. We were listening to uh, to the uh, analyst conference call that the company was having, and and Jeff, maybe I'll let you take this, and you can talk a little bit about a little bit about what we heard because it was pretty entertaining. Well, uh, thanks, Hunter. And uh, well, just from a self-interested point of view, he uh, he called uh, gaming journalists the state of gaming journalism despicable. I think he was mainly uh, referring to some uh, Asian news reports that said that the company might be uh, either spinning off its uh, Macau subsidiary or doing some kind of an Asian-based IPO, um, but. You know, so he was uh, pretty critical. So at least, at least, uh, print journalists have now been lumped in with the likes of you bloggers. <laughs> um, and uh, so he he dislikes everybody, I guess, in that and, regard. Um, he had a couple. Actually, he had a few uh, interesting things to talk about. He talked about the um, looming air service cuts. He said that it's important, but there's really not much operators could do about it. Um, He said that uh, the visa restrictions in Macau have so far not affected WIN, but apparently have affected their competitors. Um, The Encore budget increase um, went up a hundred million bucks to two point three billion. He refused to specify what it was, but he said, you know, we added some more stuff. Um, and uh, he, in terms of uh, the job, the hiring for Encore, said that they had a pretty amazing twenty-four thousand applicants in the first three days through today, um, and uh, and uh, that thirty percent of those folks were unemployed. Um, he said that. Uh, 
Tom Breitling and Tim Poster were hired because they're incredibly talented. The company plans to grow um, relatively aggressively, and that those guys were, uh, um, you know, young and smart, and uh, um, it just made sense to take take advantage of their talent. Um, and he also said that the uh, junket wars in Macau, um, he said that his company was the only um, operator that refused to compete in that playing field, that they did not raise their junket rates. And he uh, described the other five as um, chasing each other in circles, chasing junkets, and uh, said that um, you know he, he sort of stayed above the fray and um, continued to do well. Um, he reiterated his, you know, he said that they always, you know, aim to hold the top of the markets, and that's what they do. So it was, you know, it was, it was sort of winning his best, being, you know, taking shots um, at, at fans at MGM Mirage occasionally, not directly, but implied. Um, and uh, anyone, I'd, I'd recommend anybody to listen to that conference call if you have an interest in the company. I, I agree, and for those that uh, want to check it out, I believe it's linked up at windresorts.com, and you can sort of replay it on a webcast type thing. Um, I think the extra $100 million is go, probably going into the blogger suite that he's going to be building there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think my keys are in the mail, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit later about Steve Wynn and a quote he had um, this, this past week about uh, bloggers, and it sort of ties into the journalist comment he made, um, but first – uh, let's talk a little bit about the Sahara. Um, Sahara is, you know, one of the older properties in the Las Vegas Strip. And uh, recently, it was well, not that recently, but it was maybe six months ago, a year ago, purchased by uh, Sam Nazarian, who is uh, has had nightclub businesses in Los Angeles, some hotel, some hotel businesses. Um, sort of uh, definitely caters to a younger and hipper crowd. Um, which, you know, that, that crowd's definitely coming to Las Vegas often these days, especially with the popularity of the nightclub scene. Um, well, he bought the Sahara. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, this I guess it's a week ago tomorrow, um, talking about his plans. And uh, some of these have been published previously, but this is a pretty substantial article, um, basically talking about the fact that uh, he plans to not do a total implosion and redo, but focus on refurbishment, maybe add another tower, uh, move some stuff around. And uh, there was a line in there that some of my readers sort of uh, didn't really buy into, which is basically he's trying to claim that he can compete with $200 roommates because he's serving uh, some kind of segment of the market that wants to come to Vegas but can't, this younger this younger poor club segment, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so what do you guys think? I know, Chuck, you had uh, you had linked this up, and I think you also have actually been to some of his, some of his Los Angeles establishments. Is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, one of his uh, – the places that they spoke about in, in a great degree of detail in that article, uh, the Abbey, is a little – you know, a very small kind of lunch outdoor spot in West Hollywood – uh, you know, it's not really all that fancy. The service isn't really all that great, but apparently, you know, it brings in a you know a pretty good clip of money. Uh, you know, it's 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 a nice place, and uh, I could I could see uh, you know the style that goes into it has gone into a lot of the other clubs and the hotels and whatnot that have spawned up SBE SBE places that have spawned up all over West Hollywood and Beverly Hills, like every couple of blocks, you know, you see a new 
you know, a bunch of uh, construction boards go around an old building, which comes down, and then up comes a club. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty popular. Uh, you know, they do a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, to, to say, back to the article, to say that they're going to, you know, be competitive at $200 a night room rates at the Sahara, I think, is, is kind of preposterous. Uh, you know, right now, I just checked Sahara room rates this week, and uh, they're going at like 32 to $38 midweek to like $45 on the weekend. And if they're not, you know, maybe on this new tower, which you can sort of see an outline of in the, in the photo in the Wall Street Journal article, uh, you know, they might be able to do that. But for the other rooms, it's kind of going to be interesting to see how they have this disparity of a new tower with all this fancy stuff and, and the old tower. So are they going to knock walls out and make rooms twice the size in the old towers and whatnot? I'm really, really kind of unsure about how they're going to balance the old with the new and be able to keep $200 a night as a regular kind of rate, unless they open up this other tower as like a the hotel sort of addition to Sahara. Well, and the the idea that, I mean, the Sahara obviously at this point has attracts a lot of value-conscious customers, and some of them I assume have been going there for many, many years. So are they going to like kick these people out and bring in the club crowd, or are they those two groups of people somehow going to coexist? Um, I have, you know, this doesn't seem to meld in my mind. I'm trying to picture this blue-haired grandma next to, you know, a clubber dude, and uh, they just don't seem like they're going to get along. Yeah, the I I don't I think this market segment that he's imagining, you know, it, it, I don't know if it exists. Uh, you know, these these people who whoever they are who can't afford to go to the strip for two hundred dollars a night, you know, that's actually kind of expensive. You know, you know, if you can't afford to go to the to Vegas and you're thinking two hundred dollar a night is going to be a good party kind of bargain, well, why not just go stay at the Mirage or you know, the Luxor, which is becoming sort of a hot-ish kind of spot, you know, or Mandalay Bay or any of the other places. You know, I, I just don't I just don't see how this is going to float. And you know, one, go ahead. I, I was going to say, Hunter, that it's sort of surprising, but the Sahara, the Stratosphere, Imperial Palace, the cheapest places on the Strip right now already do have sort of a young clientele, but it's a young, poor, non club going not you know these are the folks who can't afford to go to those big nightclubs and get bottle service you know they're buying you know you know they're buying a bottle and taking it to their room and they're and they're and they're certainly not big spending folks these are you know first second third time visitors to Las Vegas that are partying but they're not big spenders and uh but it already does have sort of a young clientele the the problem i have is i i think it is grandiose to think he can get $200 a night rooms. But I do I think the big problem when I when I asked I asked Wynn about this a couple maybe I don't know almost about a year ago when Nazarian first announced his deal. Um he was skeptical that anybody could come in and redevelop a property. It just has been spectacularly unsuccessful everywhere it's been tried. Um, you know, MGM Grand tried to do it around the marina, and they had to totally, you know, throw that out and, and, and start again. Um, Aladdin tried to do to build around the theater for the performing arts. That left to a crazily designed property that, you know, went into bankruptcy, and still they're dealing with a property where the, the mall is the centerpiece 
you know, sort of surrounding a casino um, where the, you know, I mean, it's just incredibly poorly designed. Um, and so to, it, it's just very tough to say we're going to keep these pieces and build around it. Caesars has been the most successful um, at sort of cobbling on and adding new and new elements. But there, you know, you do have sort of a, a very unusually designed property. Um, so I think that's one of, that's, you know, that's sort of the big, the big question I have is whether the spending makes sense. Could he have, instead of spending, you know, a few hundred million dollars to buy it and more hundreds of millions to redevelop it, would he have been better off building, spending about what Maloof has done and building a couple smaller towers and a bunch of great clubs and restaurants? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, time will tell. But um, I'm certainly very skeptical of his chances for success. Now, I mean, obviously he has uh, he has this benefit of location because right now that place is sort of sort of cut off. But you know, MGM Mirage has big plans for that land down there with their Kersner deal, and so it could end up really putting a shot in the arm of of that area. But but I agree with you, Jeff. I mean, it just I I would wonder if these numbers really make sense. And can, can you even the amount of money he's going to have to spend to make it to get to that level, uh, you can, <laughs> and then uh, and then pay at that at, at a $200 ish room rate. I mean, I, I just wonder if that it just doesn't seem to make very much sense in the sort of back of the envelope kind of calculations. Has uh, Dave? I was going to ask you. Um, you know, and Jeff mentioned a couple of examples. Are there any good examples historically, um, as my go-to history guy, uh, of redeveloped properties that have that have really done anything? Well, I think you've got to look at the Tropicana smashing success. Um, that's clearly <laughs> at the top of the list. Um, Hooters is another great example. Um, the Riviera's continued profitable. I think, yeah, I think, yeah. There, you. I don't see how you can look at this and not think that redeveloping would be a success. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I definitely appreciate the sarcasm. I, I think that pretty much validates the fact that this this idea is sort of questionable. Uh, you know, maybe he's got some kind of uh, secret uh, crystal ball, but it doesn't sound quite right to me. Oh, I forgot the Weston. Oh, right. The Weston. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, hopefully well, I, they would go I was ahead. I going to say, it was uh, – you know, he's saying that these, you know, um, uh, trust fund babies out in L.A. who comprise his constituency are whining to him about being priced out of Las Vegas. When, when the perception around here, if you know, if you follow various forums and so on, is that that they're the ones who are to blame for getting right. practically everybody else priced out of right. the market. And, uh, you know, and if, if uh, you know, if those, uh, you know, if those well, well-endowed, uh, pretty young things can't afford to stay in Las Vegas, and I guess we really are in, in uh, things have really gotten bad for the U.S. economy, although I, I A, I doubt that, that, you know, the Sahara is going to be what they want to gravitate towards in terms of a casino product. And uh, also, I you know I I think it's kind of a it sounds like a fish story to me, but I did I did I ran um, uh, ran Nazarian's uh, plans as outlined in the journal uh, past a, a friend of mine who their immediate reaction was quote he talks about other hotels alienating young partiers but I don't see him offering much different unquote yeah. 
Well, are you, I mean, it looks to me like this guy would have been better off just, you know, building a club in someone else's casino and servicing customers that way. Yeah, but hey, ride that uh, roller coaster and and, <laughs> it, and belly up to the bar at the NASCAR cafe while you can, because they're going to be history once these these plans get rolling. Now, another, uh, of course, you could look at it even more skeptically and say this guy made a good purchase price from the Bennett family before. Um, the bar was set at an even higher price mm-hmm. when MGM bought the land across the street and when Ruffin sold his land to the Plaza developers um, at an incredible you know, $50 million or whatever it was, $30 million per acre. Um, that, and so he, he already, if you look at it that way, he has a good deal on land. Let's say he doesn't build the tower. He puts tens of millions not hundreds of millions into redeveloping the tower making making you know the rooms a little nicer putting a few nice clubs in there and just holds on to it maybe throws off a little cash flow and waits for the economy to rebound and then flips it i mean certainly in that scenario he could realize you know a few hundred dollars a few hundred million dollars after holding the place for you know a relatively short period of time, that's certainly possible. And so you know, I mean, all of this could be just smoke for his real plan. And uh, you know, we'll just have to see if he actually follows through, can come up with the money to build a hotel tower and do all the things he says he's going to do. Um, you know, those those big multi hundred million dollar plans in Las Vegas are uh, are pretty frequent, but the people who actually have the cattle to back up the hat, um, those people are a lot fewer. Yeah, he can you know he can build the Maxim Casino in that space, I guess, <laughs> or the, well, the many other unbuilt ideas that keeps you floating by. Yeah, Mike Weatherford had some you know some updates on the entertainment program at the Sahara today, and and it just looks like the same old same old. So if if uh, Nazarian's got any new wrinkles, he's he's taken a long time to. Uh, yeah, in terms of what the the ongoing offerings at the Sahara, he seems to be taking taking his own sweet time to actually get them uh, up and running. Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, I think Jeff Jeff's got a good point, and uh, I agree with you, David. That uh, so far things haven't changed much over there. So maybe he's uh, going to do it all in one shot. But you, there's so far, I think, little real evidence of any of any significant change. All right. Well, that's Nazarian, and uh, we'll continue to watch that and see what happens. But next up, I want to talk a little bit about a quote this past week from uh, Wind Resorts Chairman Steve Wynn. Um, the actual quote, and he's discussing um, recessions and how they impact Las Vegas. And Wynn's quote is, the difference now is that we have all these internet bloggers and half-assed observers. Seventy percent of what they write is total bullshit and total fiction. Uh, and he goes on from there, basically, to uh, to talk a little bit about what he's going to pre-announce. So the the you know this made the the of course all of us bloggers really sort of delighted in this to some degree um, because it's you know he's calling us out to some <laughs> to some degree, and um, I thought it was both funny and um, well I I got a good chuckle out of it myself, uh, and we have on this call you know we have quote unquote real journalists and uh, and us bloggers and I definitely do not consider what I what I do to be journalism uh, I there's a certain standard that 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 word implies and I you know I don't go around uh, double and triple sourcing stuff and double checking things and and getting my five W's into my stories I, I post stuff that I think is interesting 
And uh, I, when when something is shaky or unconfirmed, I try to say that, but uh, but that's about the extent of how far I go to check out my my sources. There was one particular story I posted a couple of weeks back talking about Encore and potential delays. Uh, I had gotten some information from several Wind Resorts employees who had uh, implied that there may be some more serious problems that causing delays at Encore. And uh, you know he's he's spoken to to that issue several times since then. I have no way of knowing, um, and I I would not presume to suggest that uh, he's aiming this at myself or anyone that I know. Probably more a uh, blanket statement. I know Jeff, you had mentioned some uh, some Asian bloggers and some funky stories there, but uh, combine this with his comment today on the call about the deplorable state of the gaming industry journalism. Uh, you know, this is pretty funny. Anybody else have a reaction? I mean, we've got both both uh, journalists and bloggers on this call. I'm curious what you guys felt when you read that or, or what you think. Yeah, I thought he had a fairly valid point in that I think there's way too much analysis going on um, now. I think every time – and it's not just with gambling. It's with everything in the news. Every time something happens, it's just sort of devoured for this news cycle, you know, ad nauseum. And, you know, I think sometimes it's better to let things just sort of play out and see what happens. Well, I, I think that even though we might wish that were so, I think that's unrealistic. And, 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 and speaking as someone who's employed in the more traditional journalism field, I think that, um, you know, you see it in our sphere. Um, you'll see newspapers um, putting up you know, with varying degrees of editorial supervision, blogs, um, and 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 similarly, we allow comments to follow our stories. Sometimes moderated, sometimes not. Um, and uh, so you know, so the the public is getting involved in what used to be a, a more territorial sphere. I think that there's no way for that to stop. Um, people like Wynn um, can. Uh, you know, rail against the ocean as much as he wants, but that is, it's going to continue. Um, as far as whether he's right that, you know, it's, you know, 70% you know bullshit or whatever it was he said, um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, with a discerning eye, you can figure out what's, what's better and what's um, less good um, that you read in the blogosphere and in print, <laughs> for that matter. Um, and uh, so... You know, he may be uh, annoyed every now and then, um, like most of us are, about things that are written. But um, I think that, you know, there's just nothing that can be done um, about it other than uh, try and be a discerning consumer of whether it's of blogs or of newspapers, magazines, tele, you know, televised journalism. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that it is possible to be an educated consumer of those things. Um, you know, and and so you know, it's like you know, Win is. I, I think he's just, you know, you know, sort of uh, whistling past the graveyard. There's nothing that can be done about it. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I will say that uh, <clears throat> I wish I could make up seventy seventy percent of the stuff that I wrote because it would make my job a lot easier. But uh, you know, a lot of my readers are repeat. Most of my readers are repeat readers, and if I was making stuff up all the time. Uh, I probably wouldn't have very many of those. I mean, we we that are writing on blogs live or die by our reputations just as much as anybody else. Um, and now that's not to say that I haven't maybe posted things that have turned out to not be true. That that happens sometimes. Um, but that definitely uh, I can speak for myself. 
uh, I do not post things that I know to be untrue to for any kind of ulterior motive. I mean, I, no, you know, I just wouldn't even consider doing that. Wouldn't be any fun. But still, <laughs> quite an amusing, uh, quite an amusing quote. Well, I think that really speaks to a broader issue that runs through runs through all the journalism, where there's a real lack of sense of history and there's a real tendency to sort of play to the drama and I think to try to maybe make a little bit out of things that are happening. You know, um, for example, the downturn, yes, things are not going as well as they were going before, but it's going to pick up. You know, I think there's really a tendency to exaggerate things, and maybe that's part of his frustration there. Yeah, I could definitely buy that. And Dave, uh, I I didn't mention it, but you did write a a story on your blog responding to this um, (laughs) and that, you know, I thought was a very measured um, response. And I I don't disagree that there's definitely a lot of, uh, especially with this economy thing, this doom and gloom, bandwagon jumping, the story sort of takes on a life of its own. And at some point, with some stories, you even get self-fulfilling prophecies with some of these things, you know, you ask for it and it comes. Yeah, you know, I think in the end, um, the gambling business, like any other business, is going to be better for having educated bloggers out there and having people who care enough to write about this. Um, but I think the, the problem is is that people in general just need to be very well grounded before they start writing things, and they kind of should get a deeper sense of what's going on before they've gotten involved with the industry. I will also add that these companies could do themselves a little bit of a favor in this regard by servicing bloggers with giving them better PR contacts and um, and associations. I have a very hard time, and it varies from company to company, but being taken seriously um, and getting any kind of information out of these guys, any kind of initial comment or background information is very difficult because they just aren't in many cases. And this is improving slowly but not really in tune with new media and the, the you know the idea that there are people that aren't writing for newspapers that might have an interesting thing to say or that have people reading what they're writing. So they definitely could do themselves a favor I think by um you know making themselves a little bit more available to bloggers that do want to that do want to get the company's side of the story before they post something. I wasn't able to get Winterzorts to comment on the story that I posted um but I know, you know, obviously Jeff has a long has a long track record of doing that. I'm not surprised that he was able to get to get in and talk with them on the phone. But uh, they could, you know, even even a minimal amount of of uh, improvement, I think, would go a long way um, to uh, to making that back and forth a little bit easier. And and yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not territorial in that regard. I absolutely think that those that companies should respond to bloggers. I think that in some industries they're they're much better than others, and the casino industry has been very slow to accept um, the reality, and it's just foolish. I mean, they're just allowing things to sit out there, um, and they should be proactive, um, not only fielding calls from bloggers looking for verification, but but ab- but a- actual participation in the venues themselves. And I think that um, it's unfortunate that you know some of these companies are slow to adapt, but I think that you're right, Hunter, the trend is in that direction. And I think that five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, um, we'll see increasing participation um, by the companies you know, in the blogosphere. I think that's yeah, I... actually going to happen as, in fact, I could just 
Spragan again, as print media, sorry, <laughs> Jeff, as print media um, circulation declines, I think they're going to have to say, look, there's more people. This web, these websites are getting more hits than a lot of the smaller news outlets. So, uh, you know, I think that should be inevitable. That's why we're moving in that same direction, David. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, that's smart. The Sun has made a huge investment in Internet technology, um, and much more so than the other paper. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, I think it's very smart of them to do that. Well, the, what, what strikes me most about uh, – Wynn's comments, and I saw a different iteration of them in that interview that he, uh, that the KLAS TV posted it on its website, where he's talking about he has a good line about um, fact and fiction hold equal weight on a computer screen, but the same could be uh, said, and perhaps more so about cable news. And then you look at local TV news coverage of the of the casino industry, and it's terrible. Uh, they're making you know, just boneheaded mistakes all the time, and and plus, I think there's a certain his remarks imply a certain uh, misplaced nostalgia for for the print medium, and yet, you know, the RJ once had to retract an entire story about the Riviera. This is, you know, it's it's not, you know, it's not like any news medium has inherently more value than than the other. Although to listen to certain you know certain publishers here in town you know the the printed newspaper is is the holy grail and nothing will ever supersede that and on and on and on well and I, I think th- that you know that, that that's the to take that mentality as i mean you're just sort of heading for the elephant's graveyard yeah i i mean i do think it comes back to being a discerning consumer of media where wherever it comes from um, because you know, eventually, you gotta you have to be able to tell uh, which sources are better than others, and some people will try to feed you, if not total BS, at least their uh, heavy slant on certain issues. Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's obviously a topic that will continue to rage uh, as as the sort of world adjusts more and more in the, the gaming industry, in particular, to the changes in in media, how it's produced and consumed. Uh, it's Definitely something that I'm that I'm fascinated by to see to see it change and work. So we'll probably talk about it some more on this show down the road. Um, this this was a, a fun catalyst for uh, for bringing it up as it definitely surfaced. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll keep watching it and see and see where it goes. Um, the next story I wanted to talk about was uh, something Dave that you uh, that you brought to my attention. It was a story that was in the Sun the other day um, uh, about a study done by UNLV and the University of Western Ontario on um, internet gaming. And it was interesting. It, it talked about some um, some of the, well, if it talked about some of the, um, quote, referred to online gaming as, quote, unquote, a harsher environment in some cases than a brick-and-mortar casino. Um, D- Dave, can you give us a, a brief rundown on what the study covered and, uh, and what, why it was interesting? Yeah, basically, this was not any kind of sociological or poli-sci study. It was done by a, I believe, marketing professor in the hotel college just to see what consumer preferences were. And essentially, they interviewed 30 gamblers, which I know does not sound like a huge sample, and they just asked them how they felt about different different forms of gambling and had them pick out pictures that explained how they felt. And they found that some people, you know, as it's 
you would expect it with a sample to small where some, you know, some people that might be outliers, it might not represent everybody. Uh, and I think their stories dominated some of it as far as being bullied on, in online poker chat rooms and stuff like that. Um, that's pretty much what I got out of it. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I think uh, most people that have, you know, that frequent internet message boards or, or websites that have comments are familiar with, uh, you know, the, the terms trolls and flaming. Basically, you know, people that uh, come on certain websites and will say incredible things that they would never say to someone to their face. But because of the sort of anonymity and detachment of the internet, they feel inclined to just blast people. Um, it was it was funny to see that you know to see that expressed in the in the uh, study and in the article uh, how, how freaked out some of these people seemed. I mean, they seemed almost like they were more than just offended. They were almost as if they were worried about their about their health and their and their well being because yeah. of how they were treated. <laughs> Yeah, the woman who had to have her husband next to her while she was gambling at the computer because she was afraid of some guy. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. I, I just want to say, you know, you can block the chat feature. You don't have to keep that open. Or not play. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was, yeah. I just thought that was such a crazy – uh, well, maybe not crazy, but such an interesting, um, you know, such an interesting perspective. And it wasn't just her. I mean, basically the, the slant was, was that uh, these are – these are dangerous places, and you're much safer off going to your casino down the road. Well, you know, the thing, the thing, my take from that, first of all, it sounded like, even though they described it as a study about online gambling, the chat feature is really, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I am not an online gambler and have not done that, um, but... Um, uh, but based on what I, what I've, uh, the the number of people I've talked to who do, the chat feature is really a, an element that goes along with online poker, not so much online um, casino games, which are relatively solitaire, um, solitary, like um, you know online you know slots or online blackjack or online you know dice or whatever. Those people aren't going to be communicating with other folks at the table, and there's no reason for people to be uh, you know harsh and critical. But I think at the poker table it is, and that and that's the the second thing that struck me is, and this is you know a word we couldn't use in my newspaper, but I would say that's sort of a no shit story. <laughs> um, is that I don't think there's anyone um, who has covered online poker um at to any extent it would be that would be surprised about the um incivility or uh, the lack of civility um uh, that accompanies online play um in general people um you know they they are much more they're much braver much more willing to say things that they would never do in a, a brick and mortar card room um and that's been you know wide that's been certainly widely known and widely discussed for you know 6 7 8 years as long as i've been covering um online online poker so i mean you know to me i just looked at that and thought you know oh you know there are people who think that you know it's it's sort of a a rough and tumble world out there if they have their chat engaged well you know no shit i mean i think that is a that is common knowledge not a surprise to anyone at all the thing about the difference between online gambling and gambling at a casino is uh, you know there is no pit boss or security in the online realm you know they and that's the reason why they have them because they don't have to hire employees to monitor these things uh but something else is 
to add to this is that this type of um, instant messenger intimidation is part of the play of the game, uh, particularly in poker. You do these things too specifically, throw your player off of their game. So they're distracted, so they're not thinking about their cards, they're not thinking about this. You know, you get under the skin in the same way that a Matiso or a Helmuth being a uh, a douchebag kind of gets under the other players, you know, at the World Series of Poker. So it's it's a not you know a I agree with Jeff, no shit, and b you know that's part of the strategy. Yeah, that's a good point, Chuck. I hadn't really considered that, but I'm sure that you're right. I don't play these games really myself either, but that definitely makes sense. Um, it, it's just it, it was just like the uh, the little white lamb was being was being taken advantage of by the mean gamblers. <laughs> it was just this just kind of very very comical kind of reaction. Yeah, it also seems like it's focusing on a very minor part of the whole game, the whole experience. It just seems like it was a little bit out of proportion to the actual, you know, the role that chat plays in the actual game. Or well, I guess for some people, it's a big deal. I'm surprised they don't spend more time talking about the. Uh you know, bots and uh, collusion amongst players, <laughs> yeah. like that, which is really what, what turned me off to, you know, to playing online. I don't play online anymore for that reason. Well, those are the big stories right now, and you could go to many other online sites and blogs that um, those those boards would be aflame with discussions about um, certain uh, poker websites, and I'll name two, um, Ultimate Bet. Poker and our ultimatebet.com and absolutepoker.com that um, are being excoriated um, on message boards and on blogs because of their uh, um, there's a couple uh, documented cases where they had super users who were able to see their opponent's whole cards. It's obviously a huge advantage. Folks with connections to the company make profit at the expense of gullible, um, you know, unknowing, uh, you know, competitors who are losing money. The companies say that they've made it right and given people money back, but um, it certainly plays into people's fears about um, the security and safety of those games. Um, and so there is, you know, those are huge issues right now in the online gaming world. Um, there are some other companies where, you know, nobody's proven anything wrong about them, and they're sort of suffering as part of the industry. Um, and, you know, some folks will say this is a, this is a reason why um, the U.S. government needs to get involved in regulating poker. Um, online poker. Um, right now they are um, thinly or not regulated by uh, marginal non-governmental um, or barely governmental um, entities outside of the United States. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's certainly a an incredibly hot topic on, um, on poker uh, message boards right now. It's uh, very, very, very hot. I think they kind of tack something on to, to, what, to what Jeff's saying a little bit uh, now, how would this relate to if people are able to hack the downloadable software to see uh, people's whole cards for various nefarious reasons? Uh, what is to keep mobile gaming devices in the casino from being uh, breached similarly? Well, you know, I, I, I think the difference would be that, the, that these devices in, in our casinos would be regulated by the Gaming Control Board, and they would have a look at the software that controls that that um, they operate, and they would make sure that there's no, you know, secret, you know, password or secret loop that would enable, enable somebody else to, 
you know, have an unfair advantage. Um, and and that's the problem here is that that people close to the you know, the ownership of these businesses, these online poker room operators, um, they were giving, they, you know, some of their people had passwords that enabled them to use the existing software so that they could see their opponent's whole cards. And the regulators, in this case, the Kanawaki Gaming Commission, which is a tribal gaming commission in Quebec, Canada, um, this this regulatory body um, had not done, and they probably don't have the technological expertise to make sure that that kind of thing wasn't going on. Um, they probably aren't paid enough in licensing fees or taxation, if any, to you know afford to be able to provide legitimate oversight. So the difference being that um, here in a casino environment, um, those kind of games would get Nevada Gaming Control Board um, oversight. I'm not saying that's perfect, but I think it's certainly likely to be a lot more thorough um, and a lot more likely to co to prevent those kind of things from happening. I'm curious also, uh, coming up in, at the end of August is the DEF CON convention, which uh, if anybody <laughs> knows about that, like during that week, uh, everything electronically goes haywire in Las Vegas. All the, uh, the boards, the advertising boards in uh, the airport become blue screen, and the Riviera removes all of their uh, ATM machines and whatnot, and all sorts of crazy things go on. So. I'm curious with those guys, if you get the world's greatest hackers into Vegas at the same time while, uh, you know, uh, financial transactions and gambling are being uh, pushed over semi-freely uh, accessible airwaves, how, uh, how this thing is kind of going to play out. So maybe not this year, but in the next few years, it's going to be a great fight with uh, DEF CON and mobile gaming. <laughs> Well, that's a good uh, prediction. We'll pay attention to that. Yeah, that's yeah. a very interesting uh, cross cross section there, and I uh, I think you may, there may be something to that. It will be pretty interesting to see as, as mobile gaming becomes a bigger deal. Obviously, security is a huge huge part of that, and um, and you know almost everything out there can be broken one way or another. We'll see how it goes. Definitely something to uh, to watch. I think. All right, I think we're going to move on to our last story of the day, and it's sort of a combination of a couple of different links. Um, Chuck, you had sent me a link uh, about a Maristar potentially being purchased or uh, you know, potent the potential formation of a new casino conglomerate by combining several smaller operators. Um, and then there was also a link today from David um, about MGM Mirage and its potential. You know, Once again, we're hearing – uh, the drumbeat on privatization for MGM Mirage, uh, since the stock price is so depressed. Um, you know, there was speculation in the article that Kerkorian may want to cash out, as he is, I think, 91 years old. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, Dubai has has this financial stake in the in the company and may may, may want to take a larger one. Um, so I'm just sort of going to stir all these things together here and and see what people think. Is it likely? that we are going to see more consolidation in the gaming industry uh, and or more privatization. Is this trend going to continue? I think that what you have to look at is that Belgian company InBev buying Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch for $52 billion. And you figure if, there, if there's that kind of money floating around out there, you know, buying MGM for $6.2 billion seems like pocket change. So I think it's, you know, it's definitely something we should – be aware of. I think it is likely. 
that number, six point two billion, just I mean I you know I hadn't I hadn't really run the numbers in my head until I saw it in the article. That is not I mean as far as these deals go, that's not a very big number. I well, mean, and that's just the that's just the market cap. A company's purchase price is really market market cap plus assumption of debt. And and so, you know, you'd be paying six point two billion plus whatever their debt is, which is going to be very large because they've financed City Center and some, you know, and and Macau. They have a lot of other obligations, so it's going to be their enterprise value, market cap plus debt. And but it would still be relatively small. Well, the Business Week correspondent, or rather the uh, the. Um I'm sorry. The, the one of the sources in the story that came up with the 6.2 billion dollar figure that was predicated on a 50 dollar per share offer. Although uh, personally, I think it. I doubt that 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 would be enough to get the deal done. I I, I just have a feeling that the, the shareholders would would not would not be sated until that price was a good bit higher. Um, well, they wouldn't se- they wouldn't sell out to Kerkorian what 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 was it a maybe a year and a half ago he offered a lot nor a lot more than that and hardly anybody would sell their shares. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, times have changed, but mm-hmm. but certainly uh you know, yeah, it it remains to be seen whether they could and also if they did buy it what would be the terms on the debt that they'd have to assume? Um, presumably, MGM had a pre- has pretty sweet rates on their debt. Times have changed; credit's more difficult, and the buyer would be a lot more leveraged, probably. So you got to wonder, you know, what would they be paying for all that debt? Uh, sort of like Harris and Station right now. Yeah, for me, the first time Dubai World came calling with their tender offer, and nobody seemed to have great interest in it. It wasn't until the second go-round, if memory serves, that there there started to be a lot of sales. Well, even before Dubai World, Kerkorian himself offered um, to buy um, a, a relatively large chunk and uh, was unable to uh, solicit many tenders. Mm-hmm. So I mean I think you know uh looking at the stock price for MG Mirage it certainly feels undervalued from an observational standpoint. I mean and we we I I would assume that these things are going to bounce back that the economic catastrophe gloom and doom 70% bullshit will probably not last forever and uh will you know things the pendulum will swing back the other direction and we'll see that go back up. But you know the other story that was that that we linked to was talking about, you know, at the I think the author said that in 10 years he assumes that MGM Mirage, Ameristar, and Pinnacle would basically be one big company, uh, assuming that they would gobble up some of these other smaller operators. But, you know, as I think, Chuck, you mentioned this before we started. Some of the businesses that uh, – markets that Pinnacle and Ameristar are in don't really seem to fit with MGM Mirage's model. Um, I mean, would you guys agree? Oh, that's putting it mildly. I mean, it doesn't seem like a great matchup to me. Yeah, I mean, this is a company that's just sold all of its its holdings in in Prim and closed one of its two casinos in Jean is going to turn around and and scarf up those uh, Ameristar properties in rural Nevada. I have a hard time buying that scenario. It just it's it, it's predicated on MGM having a sudden lust for markets and of the same sort of markets from which it has has been. Uh, curtailing its presence in the the recent past. I can see why some of the the pinnacle assets might be attracted 
attractive to them if they wanted to, you know, wanted to get a big chunk of the St. Louis market, for instance. But uh, Ameristar, no, I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, that's. I think that even though Crown says they have no interest in Ameristar, the model that the the article laid out for a for an integr- you know, vertical integration of Fontainebleau with with Ameristar and uh, the cannery properties made a little bit more sense than the MGM scenario. Well, one thing you can say is Ameristar has best-in-market properties in a couple of its markets. Um, now, a couple of its markets are not worth thinking about, like Jackpot, Nevada. But um, if you want to look at uh, suburban St. Louis and St. Charles, they're the best in the market. Um, Pinnacle has the best in the only property uh, in downtown St. Louis, if you disregard their um, nearly sunk President Riverboat. Um, and then in Kansas City, Ameristar also has the uh, the best-in-market property there, Pinnacle, by far the best property in uh, St. Charles, Louisiana, um, and uh, in downtown St. Louis, um, they have some uh, some properties also that would not be appealing to any big acquirer, probably Boomtown in Reno, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and some others. Um, but I think that um, you know there there are some attractive assets in those companies. I just think that MGM Mirage as an acquirer is unlikely. Um, MGM Mirage has, you know, sort of disdained these other markets. They've really, you know, put all their um, eggs in the the Las Vegas basket with uh, some other um, properties in low-tax environments. And um, prospectively in Atlantic City, they have half of Borgata and claim that they would like to build a city center east. I think that uh, that's at least partially related to getting the Pansy Ho ownership issue uh, straightened out in New Jersey. They have Bo- they have Beau Rivage and Biloxi, um, and of course Macau, um, a half share with Pansy Ho. Um, I don't see MGM Mirage looking for those kind of markets. Where I would see them be interested, I think that um, the the new the tenth license in Illinois um, would be a great spot for MGM Mirage, um, and certainly uh, Japan and other foreign destinations would be place where places where um, they'd like to go. But I'd be very surprised if they were interested in those smaller. Um, operators like Ameristar and Pinnacle. I mean, it's not out of the question because there are some appealing assets, but they just don't seem to mit with mit to meld well with the MGM portfolio. What's what's the top tier tax rate for casinos in Illinois right now? I think it went back to fifty percent. I'm not positive, but I think it went from because it was you know and they and and. I think it was up to 70%, which, if I remember correctly, was only in Elgin, but um, the only boat that met that. And I think that fell away to where the top rate, um, and that's a marginal rate, so they're paying the lesser taxes up to that level. I think it's 50, but I'm not I'm not certain about that. Right, because MGM had sworn off going after that 10th license in Illinois as long as that 70% rate was in effect. Well, I think down, I think if they get the right site in Chicago, um, you know, that kind of swearing off, you know, Steve Wynn swore he'd never, you know, have a public stock again. You know, companies can uh, change their minds and uh, they often will if the uh, dollar opportunity is big enough. But yeah, I could I mean, I could see them going after another riverboat property or so if it got them into into markets like Chicago and uh, ones of 
you know, comparable heft, but, you know, as far as, uh, you know, some of the other uh, acquisitions that these, you know, these Pinnacle or Ameristar, you know, theoretical buyouts would imply, I, I just don't see it happening either. The other company mentioned in the article is admittedly one I don't really follow very closely with Penn National. Uh, and, you know, they, they also implied that maybe Penn National, since I guess they got some money out of a, a terminated purchase deal, they got a termination fee out of it, um, that they may go shopping for a company like Ameristar. Uh, can someone give me a, a, a quick brief on Penn National, what their, what their assets are like and what, what the 411 is on the company? Well, I'm not I'm not that familiar with their assets. They it's it's kind of a conflation of of I mean they've got some very good properties that they picked up from Argosy, and then they have some that are not so well regarded. But they uh, they are they do have a lot of mad money right now. They've got they collected about 700 million in a breakup fee uh, from this LBO, and then if the um, if the whole um, Breakup agreement is carried through. Then there's another. I think it comes to. Uh, I don't. Remember, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's one one and a quarter billion or more that they will uh, conceivably have to spend. And they've they've let it be known that they're in an acquisition and development mode. They're talking about a site outside of Atlantic City. Um, and they've talked about buying up other companies' debt. So, so yeah, I, I think that they uh, that that they're going to want to they're going to ha- want to have some shiny new trinkets to uh, you know they want to do some retail therapy to make up for not uh, having that that buyout go through. Interesting. Well, uh, I, I, what, what, one thing to add is that it is sort of an oddball company. They have some like off-track betting things. They have um, racinos. It's sort of a hodgepodge kind of company, but they do have some nice properties as well. One thing to think about is that their uh, new COO is the former Harrah's um, COO, Tim Wilmot, who uh, I don't think uh, necessarily left a uh, um, sterling um, reputation here in town, but I think uh, I, I think there were some personality conflicts, maybe with uh, Wilmot and some of his uh, f- former fellow executives at Harris. But um, you know, Wilmot, if if we can suppose that he might take some of his, the Harris marketing strategies um, with him, he might um, have a good understanding of sort of that um, sort of spoke. And uh, that's that method that Harris uses of bringing um, folks from the outlying casinos into the center properties and in uh, in Las Vegas using their very aggressive marketing strategy. It could be a company that could be built up or expanded um, to become sort of a junior type Harris property. All they're missing is a central location. So if that's the case, um, then maybe something that's been you know rumored and talked about. Um, before, um, you know, with a uh, with an acquisition of a Las Vegas property, whether it would be Riviera, the Rio, the Tropicana, um, it's hard to imagine um, some of those being a uh, an attractive hub. But um, you know, that that's a possibility. And they've got the they've got the money to redevelop if they if they get some one of the 
one of the lower priced of those. I mean, for the Riviera stock is going for a song, um, but yeah, they, hopefully Wilmot will be his. He will, you know, he'll have better luck than John Bausch did at Ameristar. I mean, I, I gather he tried to incorporate some of that Harris corporate thinking, and it was no sale. Well, uh, you know, as with the with stock values depressed as far as they are across the board, I, and if anybody can scare up any capital, I wouldn't be surprised to see some more of these deals get done. Uh, Rate Vegas Casino. Yes, that's, that's right. What, that's all you got to do, Hunter. That's part of the thirty percent true part of this content. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I think that's it for today. Um, I'm going to go around the table, and you guys can tell people where they can find you. Uh, Jeff Simpson, where can people find you? At a craps table at Sunset Station. <laughs> Dave Schwartz, how about you? I'm at gaming.unlv.edu and diescast.com. Excellent. Uh, Chuck, where can people track you down? Uh, fighting crime in Gotham City. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got a bunch of jokers this time. David McKee, how about you? <laughs> LasVegasAdvisor.com, and to be pedantically accurate, Riviera stock closed today at $8 a share. <laughs> and I Trump. am at RateVegas.com. Do you want to throw something in there? Yeah, Trump Trump closed over $2 today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about Trump, but Woo-hoo! off a bunch of his, a bunch of his uh, you know, people in his highly successful condominium operation today. Uh, so, you know, of course, the market doesn't affect Trump because Trump has a brand that you can trust. But... Uh, well, and you know, speaking of the the disc bloggers, Steve Fries had been was was quite prophetic about the uh, the problems they were having over there. I know he had that article in the weekly like last week, and and, and now we hear the story about how they're uh, about the ship is sinking even faster than we thought. Pretty interesting stuff. Well, we'll definitely um, you know cover that if Trump's demise continues to accelerate. But uh, thanks everybody. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will talk to you all soon.